Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Lavroidis of the Nixon Foundation. Today's episode is about the millions of Mexicans who emigrated to the United States fleeing persecution from Marxist and revolutionary forces and how they became part of the social fabric of America. When Richard Nixon was a young man, he sympathized with their beliefs and aspirations to attain the American dream. When Nixon became president, he took up their cause. Of their fathers, Nixon is recorded saying, they are hardworking, honest, law-abiding family men and deeply Catholic. Here with us to talk about the subject is Dr. Henry Ramirez. Dr. Ramirez was chairman of President Nixon's Cabinet Committee on Opportunities for the Spanish-speaking people. He went on to serve in the same post under President Reagan. He is a speaker, scholar, educator, and author of two books, A Chicano in the White House and Nixon No One Knew, and a new book, Nixon and the Mexicans, How a Young Man Encountered the Diaspora of 1913 to 1930 and Made a Difference. Dr. Ramirez, welcome. Thank you very much, Jonathan. A few years ago, you wrote uh, Chicano in the White House. Uh, Why did you decide to embark on this project, uh, Nixon and the Mexicans? A person who was born and raised in Murphy Ranch in Whittier uh, told me that he had a photograph of over a hundred Mexicans, his uncles and and his other friends who worked at the Murphy Ranch when Nixon was 11, 12, 13 years old. I saw the picture, made a photograph of it, and I did not realize that that was the link that was missing from the story of a young man, Richard Nixon, age 11, 12, 13, 14, when he got to meet a hundred families at Murphy Ranch and another hundred families in the adjacent ranch called Leffingwell. So for a total of over 200 families that went to the little store where he worked, that his parents owned, that young man got to meet these uh, illiterate, hardworking peasants who had abandoned their families, their relatives, their friends, their little ranches that were, they lived in the corn belt of Mexico, the rich lands of Mexico, which were at that time, of course, under feudal economic control. And that was the little link that told me why, in the Oval Office, this young man, now grown up, now President of the United States, Richard, President Richard M. Nixon, who hired me um, despite my refusal to take the job he offered me, he hired me, and in the Oval Office, he told me, I know who you Mexicans are, but I didn't know that <laughs> when it was that he really got to know us. But when he talked in the old office about what he knew about us, I was so impressed. I kept saying to myself, this man really knows who the hell we are. It's amazing. You begin the... You, 
just to kind of go to the beginning of the book, you, you begin the book by talking about the origins and the mestizo experience in Mexico um, all the way through the revolution. Uh, tell us why this context is important. The reason why this man who wrote his story, it's in the book, volunteered and came forth and visited me, was important for him to have the world know how this man, young man, had changed the world for those hundreds of families in Whittier. My book, however, has to have a fundamental historical foundation. And so I went to have the reader imagine what this hemisphere must have been like when the Spanish conquistadores arrived in Mexico City. What it must have been like for them to see new strange people and the strange people that lived there to see these also strange-looking people from Europe. And they got together. Century after century, they got together, the Indians and the Spaniards, and out of that getting together, a brand new group of people arose. We call them mestizos. It's a Latin word that means mixed. 50-50, like I have done the DNA of myself, and I know I'm 50% Otomi Indian and 50% Spanish. So this is a brand new group of people, mestizos are the people that Nixon met. He didn't meet Spaniards. He didn't meet Indians. He met mestizos. And that's why it's so important to start the book saying who the heck we are, because people today use the word Latins, Latinos, Latin Americans, Mexicans, all kinds of terms. Hispanics, but very few people today, they, I don't know why, they don't like the word mestizo, which is what we are, the brand new group. And this book is about this brand new group that Nixon brought into the American dream. And of course, the book talks about how he did it. But these two million people that left Mexico, suddenly, abruptly, why did they leave? I have asked thousands of people of them when I was a young boy, why did you leave Mexico? And they all said, the revolution. And they said, Pancho Villa. And I kept saying to myself, I really need to know why. And so in my year, golden years now, I'm almost 80 years old, I did the research and I found out that the U.S. Senate had hearings on the Mexican affair, the Mexican question, the Mexican Revolution, 1919-1920. And there I found that it was a group of Marxists, communists, Bolsheviks, who inspired this so-called revolution 
But what they inspired was a war against the Catholic Church to eliminate the Catholic Church. And that's why these two million Catholics, peasants, they don't want to get killed. They left to go to Michigan, to go Kansas, Nebraska, Texas, California, etc., for a new life. And that's what we have in this country now. The children of these two million Mexican peasants that couldn't read and write. And the important thing is that man, Richard Nixon, is a man who was so brilliant and had such foresight of the world that he saw that group, but no one else in Washington, <laughs> senators and congressmen, on the Eastern Seaboard, the intellectuals, the professors, none of them knew anything about this group of two million now at that time, when he was president, it was more like seven million, the children, they knew nothing about them. And so this book clarifies that historical fact, and this is a contribution to the history of our country. So this was, in a sense, a, a Catholic diaspora. Um, could you tell us a little about your own experience as a descendant of the diaspora, and um, how, did that, how did that diaspora settle in Southern California and other parts of the uh, Southwest? What, were the, what, were the, what was the overall experience? I was born in a town very close to Whittier called Pomona, California. And my parents left Salamanca, Mexico in 1922. And they settled down after working in Kansas and Colorado, settled down in Pomona, California, where they worked for the railroads. And that's where I was born. And I, and so I went to Catholic school, and I realized that I was the only Mexican boy in my class. Of course, my brothers and sisters were in the other classes, but I got to know so many wonderful young boys and girls, but they all came from back east. They all kept saying that their grandparents and their parents had come from the back east, and I'd learned about the geography of the United States, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, et cetera, et cetera, um, and also from the south. Arkansas and Texas. And so I grew up and you uh, know went to St. Joseph's Grammar School and I learned about these wonderful people. At that time, of course, the schools were segregated in California, but not the Catholic schools. So uh, then I decided to become a priest. So I went to the a seminary in Los Angeles, and also for further for, for studies in Camarillo, for the major seminary where I learned Greek, Little Hebrew, of course Latin, uh, to a point I could, I could understand it spoken, I could speak it, and I could sight read Latin, and of course uh, uh, math, uh, 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 oh, trigonometry and and honor and college, you know, college algebra and advanced algebra and so on. 
and uh, the history of the world from 3000 BC, etc., etc., because, and then you learn morality, philosophy. My degree was uh, in philosophy, but no one called me philosopher. But I learned uh, the philosophies of Europe very, very, very well. And so, uh, with that preparation, I was able to uh, uh, perceive uh, the and and then travel, travel to Europe, travel to Latin America and Mexico uh, quite a bit, and uh, met a lot of people. So I was able to uh, understand why uh, people like uh, Nietzsche, Hegel, Karl Marx, and the French philosophers. Um, and came up with their ideas and their theories of uh, of a new new worlds, new ideas, the Enlightenment, a uh, period of the Age of Reason, when they um, said that the Middle Ages were not Middle Ages; they were the Dark Ages. And so, <laughs> I kept learning a great deal about things and. Um, I was a oddball. I was very different because uh, all the other kids I knew, the Mexican kids, uh, uh, they, they they just went into just regular jobs wherever they could work. And, of course, they went into the military at that time. Nobody knew who the Mexicans were. And so, like in my family, five of us went and served. We were drafted. In my wife's family, five were drafted. And a lot, a lot of Mexican kids were um, went to war, and they came back, and then they, of course, uh, wanted their civil rights. So it just turned out that I got into the civil rights world and became, uh, I was hired at a very high le- level at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights to make the studies on Mexican-American education in the United States. And uh, it was from there that President Richard Nixon recruited me to come to work for him. Could, could That's you, my story. Could you um, talk, uh, expand a little bit about how um, Richard Nixon came into contact with the diaspora as a young man? From what he told me in the Oval Office, I wish I had known a lot more so I could have asked him some questions. But uh, uh, he, what he told me was, I know Mexicans that look like you. Look at the color of your skin, vanilla. The Mexicans I knew all had vanilla skins. The other Mexicans that I also knew were judges and lawyers um, and movie stars, but they looked like me. They look like Anglos, and and they they're not the ones that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Mexicans like you, and and, uh, and this is why I hired you. This is why I put you in my cabinet because I want you to tell me what is it is it that I have to do to include all of you into the American dream. And so I said, well, first of all, you have to. Counters in the census. Okay, so we he got this counted in the census of 1970. And after that, people knew who we were. And then 
I said, now we have to count us in every part of American life, in the banks, in the schools, in the colleges, in the military, because we don't know, you know, how many sergeants there are and how many colonels there are and captains. They said, okay, uh, what else do we? And then, of course, these children are the children of peasants. And, and our country is a capitalist society, and we need to make their children also who want to become capitalists, become businessmen and, and get into business and enterprise. So he said, okay, let's take care of that. And so we'll make sure that SBA um, makes them with a program called 8 so that they could have contracts from the government. And then I told them, I said, and also uh, in corporations that uh, are, are new and they want to modernize and advance, they get new board members, and, and the board members get new presidents and so on. So uh, you're the boss. We need to have 100 Mexicans in high-level positions where they can hire and fire and award contracts. So we do that also. And then I told them, I said, you know what? We have only have one Mexican-American bishop, and I want to deal with the Pope. He said, well, go ahead. I talked to Henry Kissinger, and so I did, and I worked with the Pope, and the Pope said, okay, I'm going to make 10 Mexican-American bishops right away. <laughs> so um, anyway, so then he said, you know what? Uh, all I ever get from the Mexican vote is 5%. Do you think that I'll get more this time? He said, maybe 15%, he said. I said, no, no, not 15%. You're going to get 25 And he said, you're crazy. He's just a Latin teacher. What do you know about politics? And so, you know what? He got over 30%. Because, you know, service has its own reward. One of the other uh, accomplishments you talk about is uh, brown capitalism. Uh, can you describe this initiative and what were the results? Oh, yes. yes. That's... Uh, when, when President Nixon became president, 30 days later, after inauguration, he opened the doors at SBA so that the blacks could um, uh, become business people, so they could get contracts from the federal government and begin to join uh, the world of capitalism. And so then, that was in 69. Then, uh, when he hired me in 71, two years later, I told him, you know, uh, um, we Mexican-Americans should also be in, in that world so we can own banks, so we can also have good businesses. And he said, okay, let's do it. And so I went over and talked to the people at SBA, and then we began to get people to become what is called 8A, which means that they could have contracts from the federal government without competition. And so I helped a lot, a lot of people. Um, like there's one a gentleman by the name of Joe Reyes, whom I helped become made And he lives here in, in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, and he's the first Mexican-American billionaire. He does something like $20 billion a year. But that's where he got his start. And there are people all over the country that became businessmen, and um, Mexican-Americans, and so he took us into brown capitalism. And that's fantastic what he did. 
you um, you'd mentioned earlier some of the um, uh, Spanish-speaking Americans who recruited for a higher office, um, really for the first time in American history. Uh, could you describe um, who were some of these people? Well, <laughs> we had, uh, of course, uh, the first U.S. treasurer was Mrs. Ramona Banuelos, who had two years of education in Mexico. I came to the United States and by making tacos and tortillas and tamales and Mexican food, I became wealthy and uh, got two banks. And so President Nixon so happy to make her the first Mexican-American U.S. treasurer. Then, um, of course, we, um, wherever there was a lot of money, uh, of course, we put Phil Sanchez in an agency that had hundreds of millions of dollars that was given out to on the war on poverty. So all of a sudden, Mexican-Americans could also participate. And uh, uh, in Los Angeles, there's a, a, uh, an outfit called Telugu that uh, Nixon gave them $10 million to start helping the poor people in East L.A. And there's another one in Phoenix called Chicano for La Causa, another $10 million. And there's one in San Antonio, one in Albuquerque, and one in Phoenix. So that's a, a direct uh, awarding of funds to local uh, workers and local people to help uh, the education and, and the needs of the poor people in the local metropolitan areas. And uh, then, of course, we had uh, um, in all the agencies that could... Um, the man who was in charge of mass urban transportation, um, Mr. Villasenor from um, Brownsville, Texas. And I can just go on and on and on. So, so many. It was so wonderful to be able to recruit these people, and a lot of them were good, good, solid Democrats. And as soon as I had told them, I said, You're going to work for the president? They said, Yeah. And what do I need to do? I said, go re-register to become Republican right away. And the only one that would not re-register was um, Henry Cisneros from San Antonio, who later on became a, a, the secretary of the HUD. And Henry did not re-register because he, he wanted to be the mayor of San Antonio. So Henry Cisneros uh, um, never changed, but uh, he became the first. White House fellow. And then one day I told President Nixon, you know, we don't have a single Mexican-American general. And he just turned around and said, go make one. So I called Pentagon and said the president wants the best full bird colonel you can find, and he wants to make him a general. So uh, we made uh, this colonel by the name of Cavazos, a general, and he went up to get four stars. And so then we opened um, West Point so that they could get more Mexican Americans in there and, and Annapolis more, and then also the Air Force. So in other words, we became a part of the United States in every aspect. And it was a lot of fun. You devote a chapter to... Um... Uh, some of the early efforts at granting um, some sort of amnesty uh, for immigrants from Mexico. Uh, can you describe the origins of this and how it unfolded? Yes. Uh, 
uh, one day uh, the president was on the airplane flying from San Clemente up to San Francisco to give a talk. And he called me and he said to me, because the Mexicans gave me such a wonderful big uh, turnout, uh, over 30%, I now have to do something very significant, something that just stands out as highly salient. And uh, so give me three ideas of what I as president can do. And I said to myself, uh, wow, wow. And I asked him, okay, how much time do I have? He said, no, no, you just tell me right now. Oh, my gosh. I have to think right now. What is uh, something I've never put in my mind? to work on this matter. So I began to ruminate. And I said, you know, when I was a, a young man, my uncle, Elias, used to cut my hair, and he would always um, be so sad as he talked about his brother, my dad, who was able to go to Mexico often and visit his friends and relatives in down in Mexico. Because my dad, my dad did have papers when he crossed the border. But my uncle did not have papers. And almost all Mexicans that I knew had no papers because when they crossed the border, papers were not required. There was no such thing as um, border patrol between Mexico and the United States. So all these people in the barrios had no papers. And they were afraid to go back to Mexico because they had no papers to come back home again. So I told the president, there's a lot of people, thousands of people out there, like my uncle, Adia, that cannot go in their last years of life when they made a few bucks to go visit their friends before they died. He said, okay, that's it. That is the idea. Get the paperwork going and use these consultants, and they gave me names, and I want to give them amnesty. I want to make sure they can get papers so they can go and visit Mexico. And that was the start of, of a brand new area that, of which I knew nothing. But I, I had to learn quickly, and so I gave him paperwork. But then he and I were vanquished by the Democrats. The Democrats got us, so he left the presidency, and since he was my boss, I left Washington also. And so all that paperwork that we had started lobbying up in Congress with my congressional liaison, Robert Brucker, um, the congressmen and senators and all that paperwork was left up on the hill. And later on, of course, <laughs> it was resurrected, and Reagan was able to polish it up, and the senators and congressmen were able to pass the Simpson-Mazzoli law that allowed Reagan to sign an amnesty, and he gave uh, something like two million illegal Mexicans amnesty. But it all started with my dear, dear 
wonderful president, Richard Nixon. Part three of, of your book uh, describes some of the experiences of, of families um, who experienced the diaspora. Um, among them is Commander Everett Alvarez, um, a retired U.S. Navy pilot who um, over 40 years ago was shot over the skies of Vietnam, became um, probably the longest serving uh, POW uh, in North Vietnam. Uh, can you describe in general uh, why you decided to sort of uh, weave in this as part of the uh, tapestry of, um, of, this, uh, of this whole story? I knew that there were children whose parents had suffered terribly, deeply, hunger, illnesses, to flee from the killings and the horrible atrocities that these communists were waging in Mexico. And they came from the little villages, the little, little rural areas. And so I knew that that history, that story had to be known and related. And so I asked Everett, my dear friend, and many others um, who had experiences similar to write and tell me why their parents left Mexico, how they left Mexico, and why it is that they came to either Texas or Kansas or Michigan or California. And uh, Everett's parents came to New Mexico and from New Mexico, of course, they went to California, and uh, other people went to to Dallas, Texas. Another one went to uh, uh, Kansas. Uh, and um, but I asked, tell me why? As you asked them the questions, why did they leave? And they all said the revolution. And Pancho Villa. And I said, well, these cabinets did a good job of hiding their, through censorship what they had really done. And the people in Hollywood made movies of Pancho Villa and Zapata, made them the famous ones, but they had nothing to do with what really went on. They were, they were brigands, they were thieves, they were, you know, running around stealing food and women and money and horses and, and, and everything they could put their hands on. But the real people that were the presidents, um, Carranza, Calles, Alvaro Obregón, all three presidents um, were conducting a revolution against themselves from 1913 to 1930, it doesn't make sense. But everybody says, no, no, the revolution. For three presidents of Mexico to conduct a, a revolution during that period of time against themselves, no way. And so that's why by my research, I read and read and I found out that it was a war that was waged by the army and the government to eliminate the Catholic Church.
Thank you so much, Dr. Ramirez, for your time. The book is Nixon Mexicans, How a Young Man Encountered the Diaspora of 1913 to 1930 and Made a Difference. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. God bless you. You too.